today on Ag News Daily. Obviously, it's really easy in this industry to go from, uh, oh, goodness, we have too much to, oh, goodness, we have we don't have enough. And so right now, the question is, are we at peak? We don't have enough. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Ashton Carr. Ashton, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a great Monday. Weather's nice. Had a pretty good school day already. But I tell you what, Delaney, I hear that Iowa is supposed to get some rain today. Have you seen any showers roll through today? We have. We had some showers this morning when I awoke to thunder and lightning. Um, It's starting to clear up now, but I think those storms are heading eastward. So I'm sure some of our listeners in the eastern part of the state are getting that rain and cooler weather as well. But yeah, it's really cooled down here over the past couple of days. And I think it is supposed to stay pretty cool here over the next week or so. Yeah, we're actually supposed to get a little bit of a cold front moving in as well, getting down into the low 90s, high 80s. So I am very excited for that. Yep, it's fall weather is almost here in the air. Absolutely. And I am super excited about that. But one other thing that I'm super excited about is the phase one trade deal and helping out U.S. beef exports. And it's been reported that U.S. beef exports to China have been a big boost since the signing of the phase one trade deal. Joe Haggard, who is the senior vice president for the Asia Pacific with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, was quoted as saying, China moved its import conditions for U.S. products closer to what we would call international norms. The accepted tolerances for growth promotants allowed all U.S. beef plants access to the markets, and they recognized USDA's traceability capabilities. And Haggard also went on to say that there are other factors, included limited supplies of pork and rising prices resulting from the country's African swine fever outbreak that have impact or improved demand for competing proteins and the tight cattle supply in Australia, which is limiting competition in the export market. But Haggard says some U.S. beef exporters are still proceeding with caution. And he was quoted as saying, there remain U.S. beef processors who are still sitting out. They see high risk and uncertainty, but we are seeing more who see the opportunities in China. Our message has been, we are here to help. Our two offices in China are certainly entertaining many inquiries about U.S. beef availability, so interest level is high. And for the first half of the year, U.S. beef exports to China have skyrocketed 80% from the previous year in both volume and value. And according to the latest export sales report from the USDA, China has made its largest weekly purchase of beef on record since 1999. Yeah, I think that that's not surprising. We have definitely seen China step into the market when it comes to U.S. beef. We also saw China step into the market today with some pretty large corn purchases and Markets rallied on that news overnight into this morning and really shrugged off that news by the end of the trading session. And we'll talk about that here with Angie Setzer just in a little bit. But to get to some other ag news, Ashton, on the other 
big trade docket, I think, besides China, we've also got Brazil because today marks the end of Brazil's tariff rate quota that allows 198 million gallons of U.S. ethanol into Brazil duty-free, which really adds pressure to some top negotiators, including Robert Lighthizer. We've seen especially... Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley pushing extremely hard to convince Robert Lighthizer to work with Brazil to tear down that 20% tariff that goes into effect tomorrow and asking them again to put back in place some sort of you know, tariff rate quota or something that would allow ethanol to freely trade into Brazil's marketplace. And we also know, though, that Congress is not in session this week. They are taking a little break this week. So that will certainly be on their docket for the future, as well as a COVID-19 relief bill. So we don't know yet what's going to happen there. Uh, House Republicans and in Senate Republicans, too, are suggesting, you know, somewhere around a $1.3 trillion package and House Democrats are suggesting somewhat higher at a $2.2 trillion bailout package. So that's a huge amount of money that they are trying to negotiate and figure out what to do with here as COVID continues to loom in the horizon. Yeah, and I tell you what, Delaney, speaking of of COVID-19, have you seen recently that the CDC has lowered their numbers in deaths due to COVID-19? Yeah, I saw that. Uh, It was actually something like 9,000 people have died because of actual COVID-related deaths. I think the, I don't know what the larger number was of people who have supposedly died from COVID, but yeah, about 9,000 people U.S.-based have actually died from only being infected by COVID. A lot of other people were, you know, senior citizens, not to say that they're not important, but they were already, you know, at an age of maturity. We also saw a lot of folks that had other illnesses impacting them as well that could also have been a cause of death. So yeah, 9,000, just 9,000. Yes, I certainly thought it was pretty interesting. And I'm waiting to see if this these new numbers have any kind of effect on states opening back up or, you know, releasing new guidelines from the CDC. But it's just something that we're going to have to wait and find out, of course. But in other news, the Nebraska State Fair is underway in Green or in Grand Island. And I've been following along with state fairs closing or being postponed. And so I wanted to follow up with this. But youth and open livestock shows are being held The Raising Nebraska building is open, and there are many outdoor commercial exhibits and food vendors. However, there is no carnival or big-name entertainment this year. At the opening ceremony on Saturday, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts thanked the fair board for proceeding with the fair, even though several other Midwestern states have canceled theirs. And Ricketts was quoted as saying, it's important to celebrate agriculture because this is the heart and soul of what we do here in Nebraska. This is our number one industry, and this is what grows our state. This is what puts food on the table for not only Nebraskans, but Americans all across the country. So we are seeing some support from Governor Ricketts in Nebraska for opening that state fair and in support of agriculture. But I will continue to keep an eye on whether or not other state fairs are being held. I haven't looked on it in a while since earlier this summer, but pretty excited for those FFA and 4-H members and, of course, those vendors that are able to have that support in Nebraska. 
Yes, I believe Nebraska's is this week. I believe South Dakota's starts either this week or end of this week. Got some folks traveling up there to South Dakota to go to that state fair as well. So it seems like maybe some more of the rural areas are indeed having state fairs. But uh, yeah, I think as far as states reopening, it's a pretty mixed bag Uh, here in the state of Iowa, especially in the Des Moines metro area, all of bars and restaurants are now kind of slowly starting to shut back down. We've had a mask mandate go into place. But then you look at other areas out west, like I mentioned on the podcast last week, we're heading to Montana later this week. That's pretty much virtually 100% open. So pretty varied when it comes to different states. Yeah, I think it is pretty varied. And unfortunately, I got word that the NFR is actually being canceled in in Vegas, and they're trying to look at some other states. I know Oklahoma and Texas have been thrown into the mix, but definitely not going to be a big hoopla or anything like it is in Vegas. But I think that they are trying to still hold those events for those rodeo exhibitors just somewhere else that is trying to reopen and hopefully will be open by the time the NFR does roll around. Absolutely. Well, I want to switch tracks here just a little bit. This is somewhat timely, um, maybe more of like a feature story, but I thought it was really neat. And I originally saw this article in Todd Jansen, the ag lawyer who we've had on the podcast before, and his kind of monthly newsletter where he looks at various political and legal issues impacting the ag community. And he pulled this one from an article originally published on AgWeb and is titled Government Cameras Hidden on Private Property. Welcome to Open Field. So essentially, we'll make sure and share this on our Facebook, Twitter, and newsletter as well, just because I think it's an interesting story. There was a couple folks Um, Hunter Hollingsworth, to be more specific here, said that he and his family, who have their own private property, they use it to go hunting and otherwise in Tennessee, found game cameras secretly strapped to a tree on their private land, which was done by wildlife officials in order to monitor their activity without apparent sanction or probable cause. So the U.S. government essentially and state officials had been watching them with these private cameras that, again, Hollingsworth had no idea had been put there until they came across them. And so he and his family removed these cameras. And he said that very shortly after that, U.S. government and state officials dressed to the nines in assault gear, seeking to regain possession of those trail cameras, basically kicked their door in of their house. And so Todd Jansen's angle on this, you know, was can the government put these type of monitoring devices in place on private citizens' land? And unfortunately, it seems like according to the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment, they can indeed put these type of cameras out on private property. And uh, so, you know, I think most Americans assume that you have to have some sort of warrant to carry out surveillance or to have probable cause to do searches. But apparently, according to this, the Supreme Court has ruled that private land is not private. And under the Fourth Amendment, they are protected by unreasonable searches and seizures. And so, you know, 
these these particular folks, these farmers and hunters, were pretty upset. The Hollingsworth family, and um, they are taking their case to state court, claiming that violations of the Tennessee state constitution have been broken. But I thought that that was a fascinating article. I really highly recommend reading it just because I think it puts in perspective, you know, you think about like, can the DNR come out and put a camera in secretly monitoring my livestock operation? Or, you know, there's been the ag gag law of having folks come in and privately um, monitor what you're doing as an employer. And I think this just blew me away at how open or how susceptible we are becoming in agriculture to various things like this. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It makes me wonder just how many other cameras are out there and where exactly they're being put and why the government isn't really, sounds like, telling these people why they're out there in the first place. Yeah, a little strange, a little uh, a little suspicious, and definitely, you know, I'm not like a huge government conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but I definitely enjoy having my privacy and would be very upset if I found these cameras on my own farm. I don't think you're alone in feeling that, Delady. I'm sure a lot of our other listeners would share that same feeling, as would I. But other than that, I am all out of news. Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we hop into the markets? I tell you what, I don't have any other news for today other than just, you know, talking markets here, which we're going to do in just a little bit with Angie. So I won't take too much of her thunder away, but watching grains, especially Sunday night into Monday morning, looking really strong. We saw them pull back here towards the end of the trading session to end, unfortunately, in the red when it came to the corn markets. However, let's take a look first at old crop corn. The September contract closed up three cents today to end at 349, even while the December pulled back to end lower on the day down a penny and a quarter to end at 358 flat. In the soybean pits, they were not able to pull through. I believe they were trading up as much as 14 cents in the overnights last night to end just slightly higher today, up three quarters of a cent in the September contract to end at 9.51 and a quarter in the November, up two and a half cents today to close at 9.53 even. Wheat was the winner, if you want to call it that today in the grain pits, the September contract up five cents today to close at five. 54 and a quarter of the December put on three and a quarter cent to close at 552 even. In the livestock pits, the August live cattle contract. Let's skip that one. Let's talk October here. The October live cattle contract up 40 cents on the day to close at 105.30. The September feeder cattle pits up 27 and a half today to close at 140.30, while the October put on 45 cents to close at 140.62 and a half. In the lean hog pits, the October contract shed five cents on the day to close at 53.60. The December down seven cents to close at 55.12 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the September contract shed three cents today to close at 15.66, while the October added 19 cents to close at 17.83. Without further ado, let's kick it off to our conversation with Angie Setzer. Well, as promised, we are talking today with Angie Setzer, Vice President for Citizens Grain. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Angie, today's markets, well, really last night's overnight into today's markets, specifically corn and soybeans, were looking pretty great, pretty exciting. And then we closed lower when it came to new crop corn and just slight gains when it came to new crop soybeans. What was going on today in the trade? 
Yeah, we really just kind of took off uh, yesterday with the idea or last night we kind of picked up where we had left off there on Friday and, you know, really started to to churn quite a bit higher. There's a lot of conversation out there about uh, outside folks looking at eggs as a, a reasonable investment when you look at some of the other commodities that are trading at, at or near record highs. Um, and then, of course, we have experienced a really dry August with some areas uh, in Iowa, especially experiencing their driest August in 120 some years, you know, and so that really kind of built this idea here that uh, we were going to be looking at a substantial loss in production and really kind of developed into this frothy sort of uh, breathless trade higher at one point where this morning when we came in, uh, November soybeans uh, were up, you know, 16, 17 cents and corn was up trying to trade to, to new highs higher than it had traded um, early on in, in July. And so suddenly it looked like we were really kind of going to throw the hammer down and 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 head to the moon. Um, but then around about noon or so, you know, we did see some rainfall, whether or not that amounted to much in the areas that really need it you know, I, I guess is, is left to be seen. Of course, when you're running a deficit like they are out that way, you know, a quarter inch isn't isn't going to do anything long term, but it does make you feel a little bit better in the short term if, if you're lucky enough to see that much. So we kind of saw that sort of develop. I think we saw a significant amount of farmer sales starting to come on. There are quite a few areas out there you know, that have caught a, enough of a rain to where they feel comfortable with the crop being able to finish reasonably well. Um, and so now I think we're going to go back and forth between how much are we really cutting off or how much will we see the USDA cut off when it comes to production estimates and, and you know, how much is the guess right now? And, and obviously it's really easy in this industry to go from, uh, oh goodness, we have too much to, oh goodness, we have, we don't have enough. And so right now the question is, are we at peak? We don't have enough or are we going to see a, a market it kind of take a breather, recollect itself and and try to take another leg to the high side on on yield loss fears. And Angie, which do you see as the more realistic scenario when it comes to the corn market? I know we were hitting up that 363 resistance level in the December contract, but is the path of least resistance just down or or is there reason to break through that? I think at this point, I mean, today was extremely disappointing. Um, you know, this is the second time in, in uh, this year, in, in recent memory anyway, that we've really tried to, to break through that and had what felt like reasonable momentum in order to make that happen, only to kind of fail and, and fall back. I mean, today wasn't just a, a trip at, at 363 and settle at 362 and three quarters. I mean, it was a complete reset with a, a penny lower close. Now, Obviously, we'll have to see like no one day can make a, a direction. I do feel that we've really pulled up the, the floor. So I think the downside risk is relatively limited, even if that means we don't trade much higher. Um, and so for a while now, my idea has been we're going to establish more of a 335, 340 uh, to a 360 type trading range. And, and with today's uh, market move, it feels like uh, the market tends to agree. Now, obviously, if the USDA comes out and uh, uh, moves yield much lower um, in next week's report um, and doesn't do much with um, demand, which would be historically, um, there would be a, a surprise, I guess, you could say, versus what we typically see from a historical standpoint. Um, but if we were to see carryout really kind of drop more than anticipated, then yeah, I think that would be um, what would give us another 
uh, leg higher. But if, if things kind of maintain um, status quo from a carryout standpoint, I think we really just established that, that nice little range and really kind of uh, trade in between that until the market sees a reason not to. And Angie, when you turn your attention to soybeans, how are you advising farmers take advantage of these slight moves up or these in recent uh, trading sessions, you know, larger moves forward? Mm -hmm. Are are you advising that we pull the trigger here and execute some cash sales or are you suggesting other strategies? No, we've been uh, pulling the trigger here and executing some cash sales. Now, you have to remember in my area in particular, you know, we look to to have a pretty good crop. Most of my customers will tell you we aren't looking at, you know, maybe we're not looking at a record, but we're still looking at an above average crop here in, in the state in most areas. You know, for that reason, that that tells me that we can be comfortable with making some additional sales. Most of my customers at this point, we're working our way towards trying to get to to half um, half sold, maybe a touch more if they have to bring everything to market right at harvest time. We have a pretty decent harvest basis. We're above nine dollars cash, and we were somewhat aggressive with most of my growers. You know, a year ago or at the start of this year, and and a lot of those folks have you know some nine eighty futures already on the books. Not a huge amount. I'm not saying we nailed it by any means, but enough to where you feel a little bit better about making some 950 sales and having a relatively decent weighted average when looking at overall um, the overall position that they have. So we've really been recommending, um, I had been for a while, 950's been, I've been bullish soybeans for like a year now, I feel like. So 950 has been my target since the beginning of January um, or late part of January when we had that offset after that quick run up right there around the new year. Um, so we've had some standing orders in this 950 area. Um, some of my customers, we had some orders in a 965, um, you know, and then our next leg is going to be in that 980, 985, um, realm if we can get another leg higher. But at this point, I would say, you know, for most of my, my customers out there, especially the ones that have to move beans at harvest, we've been relatively aggressive with this move higher and, and making sure that we're uh, taking some of that downside risk off the table. Again, similar to like I was talking about in corn though, you know, I feel like we've really lifted up the floor, you know, prior to the August report, we traded down to 860 something, I believe on the November. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we really see kind of a $9 floor, you know, with the carryout potential that we're looking at. Beans definitely do have the ability to be more bullish overall, excuse me, than corn does just simply because the demand's a little bit more um, inelastic, at least in the short term with the Chinese uh, purchasing, um, the Chinese demand that we've seen and the fact that Brazil really doesn't have much in the way of supply until we get out towards February. Um, so you feel like beans stay relatively strong, um, but that doesn't mean that we aren't taking some of that risk off the table and really kind of making sure that uh, we're taking advantage and, and rewarding the market in this recent rally. Angie, I'm glad you mentioned Chinese purchases because of course the marketing year starts over tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Do you see Chinese purchases that were set for the 2021 marketing year start to take fruition and run me through different scenarios as if we do see purchases versus we don't see purchases ship out? What does that do for our soybean market? Yeah. 
obviously seeing those those purchases go is going to be vital. I think that it's very obvious in the cash market structure that we are seeing. I mean, they are booked to ship at this point. There's no reason to suspect that they wouldn't go. Uh, basis levels have been tightening along our export terminals. We're seeing a nice boat program start to develop out of uh, Black Sea there in Toledo, which we haven't seen since 2016, 2017, I believe. Um, so we have some some really good indications that the cash market itself is really working to try it and generate that movement ahead of harvest. So I think I think it's pretty well known that we will see the Chinese shipments take place. I think one of the biggest things that um, you know is a surprise to me is that people are surprised that China has turned their attention to purchasing soybeans. I know there was this idea that they were never going to buy beans from us again, but reality is the market dictated that they should. And, you know, everyone should have been aware of the fact that the U.S. or that uh, Brazil wasn't going to have a an infinite supply of soybeans and that shipping record numbers like they had March, April, May, and June, you know, was really going to mean that we were going to be the only kid on the block here July forward. So at this point in time, we've got to ship as many as we possibly can between now and, and the end of January to really kind of take advantage of that sweet spot. It's anything that's beyond February 1st, I think that should catch the market by surprise and that I'll be watching for. You know, otherwise, I think we'll hit USDA export targets, maybe see a little bit of a bump higher potentially in the next couple US, you know, supply and demand numbers. Um, but as a whole, I, like I said, I think cash market indicates that those beans are intending to, to actually ship. Angie, really quick before I let you go, walk me through what's going on in the Chicago wheat market. It seems like it's made a nice little rally up. Where's your new price target there? Yeah, we've been watching. I mean, I've been a seller of Chicago wheat above 530 uh, on the September for quite some time now. So most of my growers are out of, of bushels there. Um, you know, looking out to July of 21, um, you know, we've been doing a few different programs, some of which to try to get us into that 575, 580 from an accumulator standpoint um, on wheat with a tiny dab, 5,000 bushel here or there for these guys. Otherwise, we've been doing some hedges if, if we hadn't caught it prior. So I always say you sell a little bit of wheat anytime it's above 550. You sell more if it gets close to 575 and you sell your neighbors at six bucks. So we're kind of in that selling a little as we work our way towards above 550. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of keep watching it. Reality is if this price stays really strong and we have a halfway decent fall, we're going to see a lot of wheat and that's going to weigh on the market as we work our way ahead. So we'll just kind of keep an eye on it, see what happens. And, and yeah, anytime we're above 550 here, you know, especially for new crop. I'm, I'm uh, of the mindset that we want to look at selling. Absolutely. Well, Angie, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can get a hold of you and connect and chat markets more in depth if they'd like. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Goddess of Grain, or you can email me at asetzer at citizenselevator.com. Well, a big thank you again to Angie for coming on and chatting markets. We were chatting a little bit here before the podcast started. It sounds like things are looking good up in their area in Michigan, getting a little rain, starting to see the crop fill out. So time will tell what we have in the fields. But uh, I mean, harvest is going to get rolling, especially down in your neck of the woods, Ashton, pretty quickly here. 
It certainly will. And I'm very excited to see what Harvest brings. Hopefully it brings good news, but we will be sharing what Harvest brings on our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. And of course, we will report on it on the podcast in the future. And you can find those podcast episodes on our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.